This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, if it's late April, which it is, then it must be draft week, which it is. And Ron, all I can say is hallelujah. I mean, if nothing else, it means an end, I think. Because the thousands of mock drafts have gone since the middle of February, and let's be honest, Ron, that's become absolutely meaningless the moment the first trade is made. Well, that's true, other than uh, Goose's mock draft, which is no mock. It's better than half the teams, to tell you the truth, but uh, uh, that's why I never paid much attention to any of the other ones. Let's face it, a lot of them are guesswork. In most cases, a monkey throwing darts at a draft guide would be just as effective as a lot of these losers. <laughs> Which is why they call them mocks. Hey, Goose, um, Major League Baseball, they have an annual draft. Uh, NBA does, as so the NHL. But the NFL, it just seems like the NFL is sort of the omnipotent dictator here. Um, why is it the NFL draft is so much more popular than other professional sports? Yeah, because the nation has watched the best college football players for the last three years in all the names. You know, baseball drafts heavily out of high schools where the prospects are unseen. The NBA has a bunch of one-and-done players, so they're only campus for six months. The NHL, they're drafting half of Europe. You don't see those guys. Right. The NFL draft has always been a college event, and there are a lot of college campuses with the eyeballs on this draft. Well, we hope there's going to be a lot of eyeballs and ears on this report tonight because we're going to capitalize on the NFL's popularity by putting um, by putting it draft its draft front and center, and uh, we're going to have prospective first round pick quarterback Drew Locke in the house. He is in the house as we speak. We're also going to have Robbie Esch of the Huddle Report, who should familiar with him for years, um, as well as Hall of Fame voter Eric Hoffman, uh, who's going to help us conduct our own mock draft run. Um, only not of this year's college recruits, thank God, but of retired NFL stars that we're going to choose for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Now, I'll be honest with you, that was our last week in Tampa for our daughter's spring vacation, and I didn't realize until then at least that he joined the Hall Senior Committee this year in Goose. I hope that means he picks a senior for this first choice. Uh, the Sage is a, is a closet AFL Chiefs lover. He'll go with one of the Chiefs. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Ron, you know, he's the guy also who's been pitching John Lynch all these years, so I guess if there's a chance he says, ah, screw it. If I can't persuade 47 other voters to go for Lynch, I'm going to vote for him now on this show. I don't know. Uh, well, we won't have long to find out. But first, first, we're going to commercial. When we return, we'll recognize one of the NFL's most notable players and most unforgettable anniversaries. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, there was a notable anniversary this past Monday that involved one of the NFL's most recognized players, though really not because of what happened on the field, um, though let's be honest, he was an accomplished player. It was 15 years ago Monday, the former card safety Pat Tillman was killed in action in Afghanistan by friendly fire, and every year on this show... We mentioned his passing because we never, ever want anyone to forget what he did. And what he did was, as most everyone knows, was walk away from the NFL to serve his country and uh, to serve in a fight he believed in. Yeah, how, how many guys would walk away from a million-dollar contract in sports to go carry a rifle in the hills of Afghanistan? Now, yeah. Pat Tillman was a special person and a special patriot. Yeah, he was. And, and it wasn't just Afghanistan. Remember, he went over to um, Iraq, came back, yeah. and then went back. I mean, the guy was extraordinary. And I, I, I know, Ron, that it, it wasn't long after his passing that uh, NBC's Chris Collinsworth, former Bengals receiver Chris Collinsworth, 
suggested that Pat Tillman should be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and I will be honest with you, I, I, I like where his heart is. I, I like where his heart is, but, but my head says no, because Pat Tillman is not the first NFL player to die serving his country, nor Ron is respectfully be the last. Uh- you know, probably so. Although, uh, you know, the way things have changed in society and in our country, you, you could well be the last uh, to go to war. Uh, but I don't think that going to war uh, and paying the ultimate sacrifice should be a criteria for induction into any Hall of Fame. I mean, if the Hall wanted to have a permanent exhibitor of war heroes, they could certainly do it, uh, and, and he would have a proud place there. Uh, but I think uh, the idea of inducting Pat Tillman is sort of modern day uh, hyperbole. I'm glad you mentioned that about a permanent place because I remember writing about this on our site, which is talkofamenetwork.com, about, I think, one or two years ago, um, saying there should be a wing in the hall, at least, that recognizes NFL players uh, injured or killed while serving in the military. And I'm not talking about bronze bus here, Goose, but I am talking about at least giving them a place, as Ron mentioned, where at least they're honored. Yeah, maybe not a wing, but certainly a display. You know, Al Blosus was an NFL all-decade player in the 1940s who lost his life in World War II. You know, players like Blosus and Tillman, who left football in their primes to serve their country, deserve to be remembered by football, and those football memories are on display in Canton. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a good idea. Um, uh, they've had some temporary displays, I know, over the years. Um, a permanent one, if they had enough room, could certainly would be well justified, because it... Uh, I think it would reflect that the fittest guys in the country today uh, uh, seldom serve our, our, our country. And uh, certainly when compared to World War II or, or uh, even Korea, uh, I believe in Vietnam there's only one NFL player who, uh, who went. Um, uh, but, you know, that reflects the times and, and probably a weakness in our society, frankly. But, you know, you think of World War II. You know, Marchetti was an 18-year-old uh, machine gunner at the Battle of the Bulge, yeah. 18 years old. And he was far from the only one, you know, but just... Uh, uh, there's been a long history of this, and Pat Tillman was the last sad uh, victim of probably the worst part of our society. Well, there's a place where Ron Borges should be honored, and it's the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto for leading the Never Say Die Grizzlies. God, never forget them, Ron. I love that team. Hockey's answered the bad news bears to a championship a couple of weeks ago. And, Ron, as I said to you last week, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, congratulations. But I know you're not here to talk about the Grizzlies, Hockey or Pat Tillman, but I do know something's bothering you. You want to tell us what it is? Well, sure, Clock. I mean, the quarterback uh, pay scale in the NFL, like all the other numbers having anything to do with pro football's most important position these days, have gone haywire. And in many cases, they also seem absurdly bogus. In the 22 months since Derek Carr became grossly overpaid by the Raiders to the tune of $125 million over five years, the top salary at the league's top position has gone up six times. Most recently when Seattle's Russell Wilson signed a four-year $140 million contract extension that will pay him $65 million in signing bonus and guarantees him $107 million of that total. Uh, this for a guy who has won two Super Bowls. Unfortunately, he only won one for the Seahawks, uh, the other one for the Patriots, uh, courtesy of one of the most ill-advised throws in playoff history, but he's paid for that too. Completion is a completion. Uh, but at least Russell Wilson has a 75-36-1 record and consistently has led Seattle to the playoffs. But what about most of the rest of these slumps? Of the other six to sign big deals since Scar became the NFL's first $25 million man, only two have led their team to a Super Bowl victory, and four of the six have either losing playoff records or no playoff records. The latter would be Jimmy Garoppolo, who signed a deal worth an average $27.5 million with the 49ers a year ago and almost immediately was out for the year with a major knee injury. That's the second time in three years that Garoppolo could not survive a full season despite playing a position that these days seems to be under Secret Service protection. 
As we examine this salary explosion in the past 22 months, we find Detroit's Matthew Stafford, who is 66-75 and 75 as a starter and 0-3 in the playoffs in 10 seasons at $27 million a year. Next comes Garoppolo, who's 8-2 as a starter, but who's been on IR twice as often as he's been in the playoffs. Then there was the case of Kirk Cousins receiving $28 million a year from Minnesota last year and immediately leading the 13-3 team he inherited to an 8-7-1 and and record out of the playoffs. Cousin will enter his eighth NFL season with a losing record of 34-37-2 and a postseason record of nil and one. How much was that again? Nil, as in zero. Atlanta's Matt Ryan became the first $30 million man, and at least he has a 102-72 record and a Super Bowl appearance on his resume. Of course, he also led one of the great collapses in Super Bowl history and is 4-6 in the postseason. So which of his numbers are bogus, his salary or his record? Green Bay's Aaron Rodgers signed an extension worth $33.5 million a year, and few questioned his credentials. Unfortunately, if what went on in Green Bay recently is even remotely true, coaches also can't question him, although he can and does question them. <laughs> so, a look at the recent escalation in QB contract shows as many question marks as dollar size, which is saying something. Add Carr's 32-46 and 46 record as a starter, and the fact he's led Oakland to only one winning season in five years, and it's hard not to scratch your head and wonder what some of these contracts were based on. One thing's clear, not on winning. Ryan has had two winning seasons in the past six years. Carr's had one in five. Cousins has led only one team to the playoffs in four years as a starter. Stafford is 53-59 and 59 over the past seven seasons. And while Andrew Luck is 53-33, and 33, he's 20-18 and 18 the past four years, including missing a full season due to a shoulder injury that seemed to rob him about a lot of his arm strength. So what are those inflated salaries being handed out to quarterbacks the past 22 months say? Like the rest of their numbers, they say hyperinflation. Ron, are these contracts essentially a fear of the unknown? If I don't pay Carr or if I don't pay Stafford, who will my next quarterback be and will he be as good? Is it better to pay what you have rather than face the dawning fast task of trying to find something better? Yeah, Goose, I think that's exactly what's doing. You know, they're, they're, they're playing. They're, in most cases, they're paying uh, for a hope. Certainly, that was the case with Derek Carr. That was the case with Cousins. You know, usually, uh, historically, you got paid for production. Now you get paid for hope for production, uh, especially at that position. And and as you guys know, the numbers themselves in terms of completion percentage and yardage and touch, you know, they're all inflated too. Uh, You know, so I I guess it would be common sense that that, – salaries would follow, but I think some of these teams are going to get themselves in uh, in some big trouble, because when you commit the kind of guaranteed money, $100 million to somebody, you can't just throw them out the door like you could with some of these guys, and and a number of these fellows have, have proven, to my satisfaction at least, that they're not going to win a, a playoff game, not today, not tomorrow, not ever. Ron, since you mentioned production and winning playoff games, if Tom Brady were seeking a new contract, what would he, or should he, command? He would take whatever they give him because that's Tom Brady. You know? <laughs> he's a team guy. That's yeah, he's a, a team guy. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a team guy whose wife may, pays more in taxes than most football players make. So that's the. It's <laughs> uh, one of the. Uh, I think it was Dak Prescott said. You know, you can't uh, uh, look at his situation and compare it to any other uh, players because uh, you know whatever he makes is a problem for his wife. Well, I understand that, but of all these guys you mentioned, you know, he's not there. I mean, he's right. the guy's got all the Super Bowl rings and has been to the Super Bowls, but he's not one of those guys you mentioned. No, no. I mean, look, he, he, you know, if he just went on production, he should be the highest paid guy. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and for a little while he was. You know, that that I take a hit all the time is a bit overrated, uh, like many things about quarterbacks today. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the breadth of his entire career, he hasn't always demanded uh, nor gotten uh, top dollar. Uh, and, and that's a choice he made. And, and he... And he was free to make it because he was in a different situation from everybody else. But uh, they won't be running any any bake sales to, uh, to, uh, 
take care of Tom Brady's mortgage when he's 65, I don't think. Hey, Ron, in Ron, one year... Ron just say he's overrated? <laughs> Ron, in one year, what does Patrick Mahomes get? Um... Oh, well, Mahomes will be the next guy to go up. He'll be at $35 million or $36 or $37 million, assuming he doesn't uh, you know, get some devastating injury, which is nearly impossible today if you play quarterback because if anybody on defense even thinks devastated injury, they immediately put him in handcuffs just for thinking it. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say he's, he'll be upwards of uh, – if Wilson's getting 35 usually the jump is a couple million more. So when he comes up, you're probably talking about $37, $38 million. And, and if he takes the Chiefs to the Super Bowl next year, God knows what he, what he could – 40 probably. Thanks, Ronnie. After hearing that, i got a suggestion for you. Get Jack off the ice and behind center. <laughs> Coming up, a preview of this week's draft. You're listening to the Talk Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we have with us now Robbie Esch, who's the founder and curator of the NFL Draft website, The Huddle Report. And if you haven't logged on to it... You're missing plenty. That's your mistake. You're missing plenty because in addition to their own annual rankings of draftable players, mock drafts, top 100s, that'll report grades all other mock drafts in top 100s each year. The site, and remember, it's thehuddlereport.com. That's thehuddlereport.com. It's been around since 2001, and Robbie himself posted the nation's top mock draft in 2008. Now, with the draft this week, we've asked him to join us and give us his final thoughts on the players and teams, and fortunately, he said yes. Robbie, thanks so much for being here again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, Robbie, if you were the general manager of the Arizona Cardinals and you had the first overall pick of this draft, who would you take and why? I'd take Nick Bosa, the defensive lineman. Uh, I know everybody thinks they're going to take quarterback, but if I was a GM and I just traded up last year to take a quarterback at number 10, I wouldn't be looking to take one again. Well, quarterbacks, of course, they always get pushed up the board at this time of year. Kyler Murray and Drew Haskins and Drew Locke and Daniel Jones, I guess they could all be first-round picks. Uh, how does the Huddle Report stack the quarterbacks, and are all four of them worthy of the first round, in your opinion? Uh, right now, we've got I've got two that's in the, if you go top 32 on our board, it'd be two of them in there, and that's Kyler Murray and Dwayne Haskins. I got Murray at six and Haskins at 13, and then later I got, Drew Locke and Daniel Jones at 33 and 37. So they're right there where teams like to trade up into the bottom of the first round to get that five-year contract and uh, take quarterbacks there. Do you think Robbie, four of them can go in the first? What's that? Do you think four of them can go in the first? I think four of them can go in the first. It depends if uh, there's a couple that go top 10 or 15, then I think, yeah, we'll see four. But if it's a run on, let's say the Cardinals don't take Murray, who knows where he would go then. And then you go down, and the the edge rushers who are stacked at the top, they all go first. It could push the quarterbacks down, and we may only see two, maybe three. So, Robbie, what's the deepest position on the draft board, and and how deep does it run? I mean, in the third, in the fourth, how deep? I've got a, probably the deepest position is offensive line, and as far as quality goes, I think um, we've got on the top 200 board right now, I've got 35 of them, and i got 17 of those are top 100 players. Oh, yep. And, uh, I mean, there's good centers and guards. And, they, and a lot of them in the first round, I believe, will be from about – 
well, the second half of the first round, probably 17 to 32 is a good spot for a lot of them. There's a couple that will go higher. Um, three positions on the offensive line is one deeper than the other. In other words, like tackle, center guard is one deeper than the other two. I think uh, I don't think it's a it's, it's not a great draft for left tackles. I mean, you take uh, Jonah Williams; he's a guy that he's played tackle, but maybe projects more as a guard in the NFL. And uh, the guy Andre Diller, who's moved up here lately, uh, getting a lot of he may be the best pure left tackle. And uh, I think I've got him going on my month draft that I got on my wall here. I got him at eighteen to the Vikings. So, I would go, uh, I think guard would be deeper than tackle, absolutely. Okay. Okay, Robbie, running backs have been devalued by the NFL in recent years. That said, there has been a running back selected in the top five each of the last three drafts. Who's the best running back in this draft, and how soon do you project him going? Uh, I got the best running back. Our top rated running back is Josh Jacobs out of Alabama. And uh, I got him ranked 28th, but on my mock draft, I did not have him in the first round, which could be wiped by me. But, you know, it could also mean that, you know, I think there's, with the with the amount of edge rushers there are and defensive linemen, I think that's going to carry the weight in the first round. And you've got some that are rated pretty high. So I think between them and wherever the quarterbacks end up, they may push him out of the first round. You mentioned tight ends, and that's another position that sometimes it seems the NFL doesn't uh, regard highly in the draft. There wasn't a tight end selected in the first round in 2016, and in each of the last two drafts, the first tight end was taken at the back end of the first round. Uh, But I know there are three tight ends uh, with potential first-round grades uh, in this draft. How high does a tight end go, in your opinion, in this draft, and how many can you see perhaps being taken in the first round? I think the first one is uh, T.J. Hawkinson uh, out of Iowa, and I think he could go in. And the mock drafts that I've run, I've had him going as high as eight. <laughs> and uh, I've had him slotted at eight and ten to Denver in the recent mock drafts that we've run through. Do you think there will only be one taken, or, or will there be more than one tight end taken? No, there'll be one. I think there'll probably be two taken. Uh, I've got Noah Fant later in the draft. Another Iowa tied in, but I think those two for sure, and, and uh, the Alabama kid, Irv Smith, he could he could get in there as well. I mean, once you get down toward the bottom of the first round, a lot of teams want out of there, and a lot of teams that you know, there's teams that don't have first round pick that may like to get into the bottom of the first round. And now we've got Seattle with the trade today. They've got a pick at 29, and they had their original pick at 21, and they're a team that usually trades out of the lower round, so they could take that 29 they got from Kansas City and move down. Well, since you mentioned Irv Smith and then earlier Josh Jacobs, I want to ask about Alabama. Um, Crimson Tide's had, what, 25 first-round picks, I think, since 2010, and that's far and away the most of any school. What, in your mind, makes Alabama players special, and, and how many do you see going in the first round of this draft? I think, uh, well, first, what I think makes them special is, I mean, Alabama's been such a power program for so long now that kids that go there and play, I mean, kids will wait their turn. We'll play in a rotation on the D-line, offensive line, and 
play one year as a starter and be a first round draft pick, you know, rather than transferring to go play somewhere else. Uh, so the fact that you're playing in Alabama gives you such, I don't know, confidence or, you know, in your ability to play at the next level that these kids just come out and they, I mean, they're ready to go. And, I, and of course, the coaching there. Uh, as far as first round, I've got three graded out in the first round with the tight end Smith slightly below who could also get in the first round. So I'm looking at three, maybe four Alabama players in the first round. Who are you three? Of my top 200, let me see. I've got 11 Alabama players in the top 200, seven in the top 75 players. Wow. Rodney, when I was working NFL drafts, I'd always find a favorite player. He may be a first-rounder, but more likely he was a later pick, a guy in the fourth, fifth, or sixth round, a guy you just know is going to make it no matter where he's drafted. Do you have a favorite player in this draft? I've got a couple because, you know, it's not been a whole lot of love for the quarterbacks in this draft outside of Murray. You know, everybody's kind of getting knocked down. It really had me focus on some later round because I believe there are some developmental quarterbacks in here. One of them I like is Will Greer from West Virginia. And while he's gotten a little bit more run here lately, I also like another one, Brett Rippon from Boise State. He's played a lot of football. He's got pretty good size, and I think in the right system, a West Coast system, he could could really prove out to be pretty good. And I've got him 189 on the board right now. What do you like about Greer? Uh, I just like the way he carries himself a little bit. He's got a little bit of that oh, Baker Mayfield kind of swag to him, you know, just kind of got that... Uh, athletic arrogance, I guess. And, uh, you know, his dad is a high school coach, and he's been in several different offensive systems. So I think he'll pick stuff up pretty quick. And uh, he's got some good arm talent. You know, you, you, to go back to those tight ends for a minute that you were talking about, um, do you see New England trying to make, you know, they, they tend to make a lot of trades uh, during the draft. Do you see them perhaps making a move on one of those tight ends because of Gronkowski's decision to retire? Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. Uh, and them being at the bottom of the round, they could very easily, if there's if Noah Fant and Irv Smith are still on the board or even somebody like a Josh Oliver, or, they could very easily trade to a team that wants to come in and get a quarterback with the filthier option and go down and get a, get a tight end or, you know, the I've had to uh, mock Noah Fant to the Patriots a few times, and let me tell you, when I hear from their fan base, they would be happy with that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Robbie, I want to ask you a question about uh, something that Gil Brandt said last week. He said we looked at Daniel Jones. He sees a young Peyton Manning. He basically said they're the same guy. When you look at Daniel Jones, you see Peyton Manning? I see his mannerisms, just like when I looked at Kobe Bryant. I saw Michael Jordan's mannerisms. <laughs> You know, I mean, they can tell he studied him. He moves like him, stands like him. He's been taught by the same guy. I mean, so, yeah, I see him a better runner, of course, but, you know, the rest we'll have to see. But What do you do with Jeffrey Simmons? Man, He's a top, top defensive tackle, tore the ACL in February. Uh, what do you do with him? Uh, I'll tell you. 
and then he's got the red flags as well. So right now, I don't current board I've got him about 27 but I'd expect him I don't know it it'd be hard for me to take him in the first round I mean the talent's there but there's and I know he's you know when he first went to college is when he had trouble but still bad hey Robbie we got to run but uh, thanks so much for stopping by and best of luck this week Howdy. with your mock and your top 100 board thanks so much I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, man. You got it. That was Robbie Asher, the Dottle Report. Up next, it's one of those players he has tabbed for the first round. The Missouri quarterback, Drew Locke. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, our next guest is Drew Locke, and as you should know by now, He's one of the top quarterback prospects in this week's NFL draft. Now, Drew is a scout's dream with the measurables, the intangibles, and the productivity that should combine to make him a high draft pick Thursday at 6'4", 230, fits the NFL prototype for the position. As a three-year captain in Mizzou, he demonstrated leadership for the position with 12,000 career passing yards and 99 touchdowns in college football's toughest conference, otherwise known as the SEC. He has the arm to succeed at the next level. And, Drew, thank you so much for joining. And I know it's a busy week for you. No, thanks for having me. It is a busy week, but, you know, it's a privilege to be here and talk with y'all. Drew, you led the nation with 44 touchdown passes in 2017. You led the SEC in passing yards on first-team all-conference claim. Did you consider entering the 2018 NFL draft, and what went into your decision to return? You know, I, you know it was definitely a process getting through that decision. Uh, I, I stuck with my family, my coaches. Coach Heifel had gone off to UCF to be the head coach, but he still helped me through the process, which I've, you know, I'm really grateful for. But, you know, in the end of it, you know, when I really started thinking about it, um, I personally thought I could go out and throw it with all the quarterbacks that were in that draft, and I was confident with my skill set going into that year um, if I were to, you know, declare. But there was one thing I wanted, and that was just to learn a little bit more about the game. Um, when I started talking to Coach Dooley, and he said, I evaluated you from a Dallas Cowboy perspective, and I wanted to see a little more NFL-type, you know, style offense on film. Um, when he said that he would bring that into the, you know, the University of Missouri, um, I feel like I was going to be able to learn a lot about NFL ball, be able to talk it, be able to be really prepared going into those meetings to, you know, really try to influence teams that, you know, I'm their number one guy. Um, like I said, I knew I was physically gifted enough, but I wanted to be able to go and talk those meetings and really, you know, be able to transition into the league better. And I feel like having one more year in college football with Coach Dooley was, uh, was big in that. Uh, do, do, now that it's over, do you feel that playing that, that fourth season ha, has really made you a better quarterback or a quarterback who better understands uh, the sort of mental side of the job? I do. I do. We uh, we end up asking a lot more from the Qs um, this year, especially going into because we went into spring ball. You know, it's a new offense. Everyone's trying to figure it out. You got to learn how to lead a team through through plays. You know, necessarily not everybody knew right off the bat, and you, know, you had to battle through some struggles. It's a new play caller. That's my third OC. That since I've been there, you just you figure things out when you go through all of this. And I do think it made me a better quarterback. Got into a lot of you know fourth quarter games, going down and try to win a game when you know maybe the couple years before it was either we were beating the crap out of somebody or it was uh, not necessarily a close game. So no, I do feel like being able to come back that last year was huge in my development. So, Drew, how do you think playing in the SEC prepares you for the NFL, for your next step here? Yeah, it, it prepared me, you know, numbers, because, you know, you go out every single week and you're playing guys that, you know, I'm eventually going to play at the NFL level. You go back to a couple of the Florida defenses. 
played the LSU defense, Arden Key, Duke Riley, Jamal Adams. Um, you go every single week, and you, know, you got to bring your best because you know there's guys across the field that are trying to rip your head off, and they're really good at what they do. So if you come in and you have anything else but your A game, you know you're not gonna you're not gonna be successful that week. And that's the same thing in the NFL. You know you got guys that are making a lot of money across the ball from you, and but being able to kind of get that experience through four years of starting at an SEC school, I think that pays numbers for me in the long run. Drew, you started 46 career games in Missouri. You had a 500-yard pass game, a handful of five, six, and seven touchdown pass games. You started a pair of bowl games. What was the highlight of your stay in Columbia? Oh, the highlight of my stay in Columbia. I I kind of get away from the whole the SEC record and setting, you know, the touchdown record there. I think it would be bringing us bringing that university back to a good standpoint. After the rough year that I had my freshman year, you know, we had the strike on campus. Everything went ended up going bad, you know, that year on campus. And even with the football team, lost the head coach, had three different OCs. So I think being able to get that university back to an 8-4 and four record um, in the regular season, get to another bowl game, back-to-back bowl game. I think, you know, I'm not going to point out a certain moment that, you know, that I, I, I can come back against Arkansas or... Um, you know, beating South Carolina my first start. Like, those are awesome. But I think being able to bring, you know, a, a team that, um, you know, struggled a little bit my first couple of years, but be able to bring it back and, you know, made it something special my senior year. Hey, Drew, you were coming out of high school. You were recruited by, you were recruited by the big boys, Texas, Ohio State, Georgia, Michigan State. They were all in it. Why Missouri? Yes, sir. So at the time, Coach Pinkle had just signed a contract extension, and I was happy with you know having coaching stability. And then obviously changed pretty quickly when I got there. So that was a little little change up there. But I thought you know I wanted to be able to get on the field early, and I felt like looking at the quarterback rooms and you know necessarily a little bit of loyalty as well coming from the University of Missouri that. Now, that was ended up being my best choice and how, how fast I could get on the field. I wasn't necessarily looking at, you know, how big the school is, you know, how cool would it be, you know, to go to Michigan or Florida. It was, what's the best situation for me? Where would the loyalty lie and how fast can I get on the field? And I think that was ended up just being my backyard. So it wasn't always Missouri. There was those big dogs that came in and definitely definitely gave me a, a you know, I thought about it a little bit, but you know, it ended up being Missouri. Now you were voted. You were voted team captain as a as a sophomore. How mm-hmm. how surprised were you about that, and how much pride do you take in in being a three time team captain? You know, my dad went to the University of Missouri, and the first thing he talks about is being voted team captain from you know his teammates. And you know, I, he said that, and when we talked about ball, that's the first thing he always said. I never really understood it until I got to that point. Now, as a young guy, as a quarterback, who we didn't necessarily have the greatest season that year, but I was the head of that. I was the lead, and uh, to be voted that by my guys, that was that was really special. And then to be able to get that, get voted that my junior and senior year, I think it just speaks a lot to you know what I mean to the team. Not necessarily, I mean, I was a great leader, but I think more so how I, you know, got to know the guys, and you know, they really felt like you know they could come to me with problems, or you know, if we were going to go through a rough patch, I was going to be there. I was a steady head. Regardless if we were really, really good or if we were, you know, had a three-game losing streak, I was going to be there for everybody and try to find us, find us a way to get out of it. Hey, Drew, I know that uh, Goose asked you about why you went to Missouri. You just mentioned your, your dad went there. When you were considering schools, did he get a vote? 
he, uh, you know, he stayed really neutral, which I appreciate that from him because, you know, that's the normal question I get asked. Does your dad have any role in what your decision was? But no, he stayed very neutral, was very open to everything, took the visits with me, um, listened in to all the phone calls that I had with coaches. He was, he enjoyed the experience as much as I did and, and definitely didn't persuade me one way or the other. Okay. Well, I know I asked you earlier about the uh, SEC and how that prepares you for the next level here. Um, when you went to the Combine, how much pressure, even though you played in the SEC, how much pressure did you feel there where you were essentially interviewing for NFL employment? Yeah, there was both aspects of, you know, going to the team rooms and meeting with the teams and getting up on boards and talking over your film. I think, you know, going into it, you're nervous. It's like that first 30 seconds, like, you know, you get the awkward handshakes, you got chairs sitting in the middle of the room. It's just a little awkward. But once they get talking, you know, football and your film and getting you up on the board, I think you, you know, you kind of relax a little bit. I think the the most, I wouldn't say stressful, but the most, you know, different part of the whole deal was, was the throwing. Because like you said, we play in the SEC, we play at Georgia, played at Alabama, at LSU. Those are 100,000-plus stadiums, and, you know, it's pretty loud constantly while you're there. But now we're at the Combine. It's definitely quiet. You're throwing to guys you've never thrown to. I think that was the weirdest part. It's just not a normal environment that you're, you know, performing, you know, playing football in. It's just, it's just so different, but, you know, it's really testing you. And I think now I went out there and performed for the best I could. Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, Mitch Trubisky, Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, all recent first-round draft picks, all played right away with varying degrees of success. Patrick Holmes was another first-round draft pick. He waited a year to hit field, then became the NFL MVP. So what's your preference? Play right away like Mayfield or spend a year watching and learning like Mahomes? Yeah, I think... I mean, that's the toughest question of them all because I think there's a lot of situations where both are possible. I went my freshman year and I got thrown in the fire early and, and had to learn from learn from mistakes. So I honestly feel like whichever situation I get thrown into, I truthfully don't have a preference. If I go in and play, I'll be able to you know take what I've learned in college over my four years and adapt that into an NFL game. But if I do need to sit, I had some great backers at the University of Missouri. I know what I you know what I would look for in a backup, and I know what I'd be able to give to somebody if you know I was to learn under somebody for a year or two and then take the team over. We've talked to a lot of GMs and coaches uh, and players here who visited us uh, on the show, and uh, one of the questions we ask them a lot is, what's the most important trait a quarterback can have? Arm strength, accuracy, toughness, you know, leadership, whatever. Um, yeah. What do you think it is? I mean, accuracy is obviously huge, but my number one thing would probably go with confidence. Um, I think you're about to go into a huddle. There's 30-year-olds. They've got two kids at home and a wife, and you know, you're a 22-year-old. Um, not necessarily kid, but young adults going into a into a huddle, and if you go in there shaking a little bit, they're gonna they're gonna feel that. They're gonna know you're not ready. So I think going in with confidence, being a confident quarterback, whether you mess up, you throw a pick in front of a hundred thousand, you got to come back and be able to make a play the the next drive. So truthfully, in my mind, I think confidence is the biggest key. You know, you you were at the combine with the best quarterbacks the country: Murray, Jones, Haskins, Greer. You're in New York with a bunch of them. Is, is there a camaraderie that builds amongst you guys? Because you're all in the same pressure cooker. Is there a bond yeah. that goes among you guys? Yeah, no, it's it definitely, you start to see, like, you know faces, you see highlights, you see film of these guys, but you know, then you start to get around them and you go through this, you know, unreal process together. You do get a bond. So me and Daniel were roommates at the Senior Bowl. Um, we stayed up and, 
till we fell asleep with the lights on and our face in, you know, in Gruden's playbook. Um, it's just little things like that because, you know, it's, those are big moments in your life. These are big, this is a big couple months, so you'll never forget this. And to be able to go through with a couple guys like that and, you know, I mean, they're out, to, they're out to get the same thing you are. They're both determined. It's just nice to be around people that, you know, kind of have the same mentality you do as well. And let me sure, I want to ask you an obvious question here. What are you feeling this week? Nervousness, anxiety, um, anticipation? Are you, are you excited? What are you feeling this week? I mean, now as we talk to you, what are you feeling? Yeah, I'd say the number one word that I'm using to describe when people ask me that is just anxious. I wouldn't say I'm nervous. I wouldn't say I'm anxiety-ridden, but I'm definitely, like, a little anxious to find out where I'm going to be living and, you know, what kind of situation you get put into. Because, like I said, there's a lot of situations out there where you could be the guy right off the bat or, you know, some guy's got some vets, and you'll learn a little bit. So I'm just really anxious. I've stayed in Missouri my whole life. I went to the University of Missouri. grew up in Kansas, Kansas City, and, uh, you know, never left home for, for a while until I went to California to train. So just a little anxious to find out where I'm going to be living and, I'm, I'm assuming it's not going to be in Kansas City anymore with Patrick there. So. <laughs> um, it's a safe bet. Yeah, I think that's a good bet. Yeah, that's a pretty safe bet. So, no, I'm just really, really excited and a little anxious. Were you a Chiefs fan? One thing I wanted to ask you was, because you know, you, it, it, it struck me when you talked about the weirdness of throwing at the combine. And, yeah. and, and you're right, you're in an empty stadium. And nobody's making any noise. But I've never really thought about how weird that must really be when you take the snap and you know, you know everybody can hear the ball hit your hand. So what could you describe yeah. a little bit more what that was like for you when you know all these guys are staring at you and writing, writing down everything you do? Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's you got to go back to the basics at that point because you can overanalyze and really think about how weird it is. But, I mean, you're going to realize that it's, I mean, it's pretty freaking weird, right? You get in there and no one's talking. It's quiet. Everyone's kind of tense. You just got to kind of be relaxed. Realize you're throwing routes on air. You're throwing the football your whole life. Just really go back to the basics with that. But I think, you know, another big thing with all of that is, like, that you really don't, like, you say, set go. You don't really have a full cadence. You don't have a play in your head. Um, you slap the ball, and that's literally the loudest noise in the stadium, and there's people sitting 100 rows up. It's just, it's definitely a different vibe. you got a bunch of coaches behind you, and then you really can't get into a groove right off the bat either because it's three throws, and then you wait six to seven other quarterbacks, and then you go back up there and throw three throws again. There's no groove in it, and I think that's another, that's kind of what they're testing you there, too, to where, you know, you go three and out and come back, and they could have an eight-minute drive, and, you know, you end up having to go back out there on the field after sitting on the sideline for a while, so I think that's just another testament. Hey, Drew, unfortunately, we're out of time, but thanks so much for stopping by, and congratulations, by the way. You just made our all-interview team. Nice job. <laughs> oh, perfect. And, Ellen, by the way, best of luck Thursday night, too. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me. You got it. That was Missouri quarterback Drew Locke. Up next, it's a two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're almost at the end of our first hour, so Robert, you know what to do. That's the two-minute warning. That means we're on to the two-minute drill. Ron, you have it this week, so let's get going. Odell Beckham says he's only a cancer on a losing team. So what will he be with the Browns? A wide receiver who doesn't think he's hitting the ball enough. A headache on a winning team. <laughs> Le'Veon Bell didn't show up at the Jets' voluntary minicamp. It is voluntary, but should New Yorkers be worried? Yes, Ron, define the word again. Voluntary for us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they should, Ron. They have no idea for whom the bell toils. Oh, very good. How clever. Should the Patriots draft Will Greer to replace Tom Brady? Replace Brady? No. Succeed Brady? Maybe. 
Will Greer or Hal Greer? No, because nobody replaces Tom Brady. <laughs> Loved Hal Greer. Uh, the Giants and the Patriots are tied with 12 draft picks. Who will select the most players? The team that needs the most help, the Giants. <laughs> Patriots. There are already too many people in New York around. <laughs> Bill Belichick has made 70 draft days in 19 years and swapped at least once in 18 of the past 19 drafts. Does he hold form or hold firm? He'll trade. He has the NFL champion. He doesn't need 12 draft picks. Yeah, I agree. Form. The man loves trading picks like you love trading Raiders stories, Ron. <laughs> Will Oklahoma become the second school to produce back-to-back number one overall picks? Yes, but more importantly, Oklahoma become the first school to have two transfers taken number one. Wow, yes, I think it will. Arizona's going to dupe somebody into taking the pocket rocket part duh. <laughs> uh, who is the other school to have back-to-back number one overall picks? Logical guess would be Notre Dame or Southern Cal. My guess would be USC. OJ in 69 or Ron Yeri in 68. There you go. Two Hall of Famers. The only Ohio State quarterback ever to be drafted in the first round was Arch Leister. Does that yeah. make drafting Dwayne Haskins in the first round a bad bet? No more than the success of Baker Mayfield in 2018 makes the selection of Kyler Murray in 2019 a good bet. Hey, Ron, let me check with Art. He knows all about bad bets. <laughs> he knows the odds. Uh, the Raiders will play 10 of their 16 games this season at 10 a.m. West Coast time. Will they need new body clocks to win? Forget the clocks. They need a new defense to win. Yeah, no, they're going to need a Sherpa to find the end zone, too. That's the end of the match. That means it's halftime, but don't go away. We're going to dive deep into our first ever Hall of Fame draft in hour number two. So stay where you are. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to our draft edition of the Talk of Fame Network. And guys, it's not just the week of the NFL draft. It's the week of Earth Day 2, which was celebrated on Tuesday. That'd be April 22nd on its 49th anniversary. Now, Ron, I think you celebrated by putting away your snowblower. I did it by mowing the grass. But, Gooseman, I'll be honest, I have no idea how you marked it. So how did well, you? Well, we don't, we don't mow grass in a condominium complex. There's no better <laughs> way to honor Earth Day than to sit outside in the morning with a cup of coffee just smelling that grass. <laughs> I like it. Wake up and smell the coffee. Well, let's celebrate it right here, guys. Right here, right now, by recognizing the most Earth-friendly names throughout the NFL. Past or present. The names of players, I don't care, coaches, owners, you name it. Uh, that don't have to be, they just don't have to be reused or recycled, returned, but they can be. And, and names, really, names that evoke images of the Earth, we're trying to preserve. If you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, let me give you a hint by starting right here. Ryan Leaf. Leaf. He, of course, is the second overall pick of the 1998 draft by the Chargers, one of the biggest busts in NFL history. He lasted three seasons with the Chargers before they kicked him to the curb, where, yes, he was recycled by Tampa, Dallas, and Seattle. Goose? I'll go with a member of the Pittsburgh Steel Curtain defense, Dennis Dirt Winston. Came <laughs> to the University of Arkansas, all century tier linebacker, started a surf ball for the Sealers. He had so many tackles, his uniform was always dirty. <laughs> I like it. Unlike today where nobody's dirty. Uh, yeah. How about Air Coryell? There you go. Trying, folks have been trying to get that man uh, who not only had the Chargers flying, but once even had the lowly Cardinals airborne. We want him in the Hall of Fame. He's been there for years without much luck. He keeps getting to the finals, and it seems then the smog rolls in. Yeah, 
That's right. Well, Ronnie, I'm going to nominate your state, your case can from a couple weeks ago. That's Ricky Waters. Yeah. I covered him in San Francisco, as you know, where he should have stayed, but where he left in 1995 to be, yes, recycled and reused by Philadelphia and Seattle before retiring after 2001. Gooseman? I'll go with second-round draft pick of the Dallas Cowboys, 1969, Richmond Flowers. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> he did not bloom in Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> I love a great earler, though. I will Ronnie? nominate Cliff Branch. He was sturdy as a redwood for the Raiders, starting on all of their Super Bowl winning teams. He would blossom every fall for more than a decade, even if Hall of Fame voters forgot to notice. That's great. We're out of time, guys. Thanks for that. Now go plant a tree. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. You guys watch Jeopardy? Goose? Ron? Yes, sir. Yeah, every day. My son loves it. Okay. Well, of course you do. So you know what's going on now. Um, there's a guy named James Holzhauer. Uh, I think he's a sports gambler from Las Vegas. So, Ron, you, you probably know him. Sure, Surprise, you don't. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Anyway, he's won over a million dollars and shows I mean, no signs of losing to anyone. He's smart. I mean, he's confident. Um, but most of all, he's daring. I mean, he's willing to take great risks with huge amounts of money. And, and Ron, I'm just wondering, with all those that I just mentioned, does that remind you of any NFL GM or personnel director, past or present? Sure, I can think of them. Uh, I'll tell you one in particular, uh, one who made a big trade on March 23rd, 1959, when he traded seven players and two 19-city draft picks to the Chicago Cardinals for future Hall of Fame running back Ollie Matson. Who is that GM? Pete Rosell, who did a lot better wow. job running the league than he did running the Rams, to tell you the truth. As it turns out, the trade didn't work for either team. As Ollie was kind of past his prime, and the Cardinals continued to stink even with seven new players. So, so there you hey, go. Hey, Ron. Ron, Mike Dick at once traded his entire draft for Ricky Williams. Right. And I and then, saw where yeah, I saw right. our bet thirty five grand in double jeopardy one day. That was Ditka esque. Yeah, exactly right. And then he got so, and then, he, then he got in a wedding dress, didn't he? Or was that Ricky Williams that got in the dress? He did, yeah. <laughs> wedding dress, that's right. So Ron, when when he got really sort of nothing for Ollie Matson, did, did yeah. when they got him there, did he say Ollie Ollie and free? It's, <laughs> Very good. I had to get that in. I'm yeah. sorry. Um, uh, listen, you, you got to love, by the way, I'm talking about this James Holzhauer, um, Jeopardy star. you got to love how he describes himself. He says he's not an intellectual, but a, quote, connoisseur of low culture, unquote. Ron, that could describe a lot of people. Sure. Every sports writer I ever met, for one. <laughs> And, 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 a, and a guy who president living in a White House in Washington could probably fit right in there, too, to be a, <laughs> well, the truth. Well, I know this guy's been compared to Ken Jennings. Ken Jennings, of course, he won $2.5 over 74 straight games, considered sort of the gold standard of Jeopardy winners. And predictably, people want to see these two guys go mano-mano, which would be, sounds like a pretty good idea. Um, so, Goose, i got a two-part question here. One, if you could do that with two NFL GMs, you know, pit one versus the other in a winner-take-all draft, who would it be? And two... Who would you get to sponsor it? <laughs> well, if we're talking about the past, I'd match a couple of former Packers, Jack Venisi and Ryan Wolf. Venisi was a master of the first day, Wolf a master of the second. If you're talking present, I go Browns GM John Dorsey, Steelers GM Kevin Colbert. Dorsey drafted, of course, Mahomes and Baker Mayfield. And Colbert found Emmanuel Samuels in the, Sanders in the third round and Antonio Brown in the sixth round in the same draft. Sponsor, I get General Motors GM. <laughs> nice. Nice. Very good. Well, this is it. 
Craig know that we're going to sponsor another State Your Case, maybe with GM, I don't know. This one courtesy of Ron, who wrote this week on our website, that'd be talkoffamenetwork.com, about former Cincinnati defensive star and piano empresario, Mike Reed. Ooh, empresario. empresario. You want to play it again, Ron? Play it again. I like it. Empresario. I would have just said player, but that's okay, because uh, Mike Reed was certainly that. He always could play, and he still can. Although over the last 44 years, he's been playing the piano, not football. Yet for five years, Mike Reed was one of the most dominating defensive tackles in pro football before going off to become a Hall of Fame country music songwriter and performer. The question we ask is, was he also a Hall of Fame defensive tackle? For decades, the answer was no, because Reed retired after five seasons when injuries to his knee and his hand threatened his music career. By then, he'd been anchoring the defense of the Bengals between 1970 and 1974, like few others in the game, being widely recognized as among the game's best defensive tackles. Drafted seventh overall in 1970, he led Cincinnati in sacks four times, was twice selected All-Pro and named to the Pro Bowl, and averaged nearly 10 sacks a season despite playing most games as an inside rusher. He had 12 sacks in 1971, 12 sacks in 1972, and 13 sacks in 1973, uh, despite uh, uh, playing hurt in his final season, 1974. He didn't miss a game that year and registered seven more sacks before deciding that music held more interest to him than making quarterbacks miserable. His 49 career sacks meant he averaged just a shade under 10 sacks a season at, at defensive tackle, and he missed only six games in his career, five coming in his rookie season. He was a definition of dominating, and isn't that the definition of a Hall of Famer? Until the induction of Denver running back Terrell Davis into the Hall in 2017, a career as short as Reed's effectively disqualified him uh, from consideration. But Reed was a full-time starter longer than Davis and, frankly, had just as many Hall of Fame-worthy seasons. So why has Reed been forgotten all these years while Terrell Davis was elevated? Television, for one. Super Bowls for another. Reed played an often ignored position on an often forgotten team that didn't win two Super Bowls or play in any, as Denver's, uh, as Davis's Broncos did. However, if everyone on those Bengal teams had been as productive as Mike Reed, they would have. The problem for Reed was that the monotony and the physical toll of pro football conspired against his having a long career. With his lifelong interest in music growing, he stunned the Bengals by retiring after the 74 season to begin playing with his band across the Ohio River at some small clubs before moving to Nashville in 1980. There he became a successful songwriter for country artists like Ronnie Millsap, Larry Gatlin, Tanya Tucker, Alabama, and others. He never won a Lombardi Trophy, but he won a Grammy in 1984 for the best country song, Stranger in My House. That sounds like Clark's wife talking about him. (laughs) 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 And then he wrote 12 other number one songs. After signing a recording contract with Columbia Records in 1990, he had a second number one hit, Walk on Faith, and he later moved on to write seven musicals, and in 2005 was inducted in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Mike Reed left the Bengals behind in 1975 and never looked back. But if you do, what you find is a defensive version of Terrell Davis. So the question is this. Is it time the Hall of Fame Senior Committee also looked back at his brief but impressive NFL career? So, Ron, if you could pick to be in any Hall of Fame, what would it be? Football Hall of Fame? Songwriters Hall of Fame? Hockey Coach Hall of Fame? What Hall of Fame would you pick? Hedge Fund Operators Hall of Fame, I think, would be really good. <laughs> if they have one. And if they don't have one, they just buy one. Uh, <laughs> But if sports-wise, I would say, you know, you know my first love, so it'd be the Boxing Hall of Fame. Greatest athletes uh, and the hardest guys who take the most risk. But if I end up in the Football Hall of Fame like you, Gooseman, I'll take it, even if it's stuffed over in the corner behind all the, all the boxes where they have that sign that has your name on it. It doesn't have to be a clock, but your name is there. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, maybe one day. Hey, 
um, I'm, I wrote I'm it. Actually, I wrote it in one year in pen, but somebody washed it. Washed it. Yeah, I'm a stranger in that house, just like you, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, stack these guys for me, if you could, Ron. Sure. Mike Reed. Yep. Joe Klecko. Houston Antwine. Ooh, ooh, that's a tough three. Uh, Look, I, I like Antoine first. You know, he was one of the uh, best interior defensive linemen in AFL history. Uh, he's on the all-time uh, AFL team. Was really a great player. Obviously, I saw him a lot when I was a kid because he played for the Patriots. Uh, and Reed and Klecko are kind of interesting. You know, Reed was was uh, really a people forget how dominating a defensive tackle he was, and not that big a guy, uh, really. He was about 267 pounds. Klecko was versatile. You know, as you guys know, he played the nose. He played uh, a stand-up 4-3 tackle. He played uh, outside rusher. Um, so I would I would have Reed second because I like a guy that I can stick in one place and, and I don't have to worry about that spot for hopefully 10 years, in his case five, because I should have known because he was humming all the time in the locker room. Uh, <laughs> and then there's Klecko. Uh but look, if you got any one of those guys, you got uh, a really good player. And all three of them, frankly, are probably, at the worst, borderline Hall of Famers. Hey, Ronnie, stack these guys for me. Sure. Ronnie Millsap, Larry Gatlin, <laughs> Tanya Tucker, and Alabama. Oh, man. You ever see Tanya Tucker when she was young? Yes. <laughs> That's pretty easy. Numero She's uno. Numero uno or numero dos as well, <laughs> before we get to those other dudes. Uh, Alabama was great. You know, uh, Alabama was great. I, I'm not like a deep country music guy. Uh, Alabama to me was kind of in the, you know, you can listen to them whether you like country music or not. Uh, Larry Gatlin, those guys, a little too twangy for Ronnie. Ronnie Who, who's your favorite country artist? Ooh, who's my favorite country? Charlie Pride. Not bad. Charlie. Oh, yeah. Also a great yeah. baseball player. Did well, you know? Great baseball player, yeah. yeah. Yeah, good one. Hey, you know who writes a lot of those country songs? Bobby Bethard's, Bobby Bethard's son writes a lot of those country songs. Oh, no kidding. Oh, no, he's he's really big. I mean, it's Casey. I think he's really big down there. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. Um, hey, Ron, one other question here. I got a gig tonight, all right? Who am I scheduling? You, you got to pick the guy. Who am I scheduling? Mike Reed in the piano? Bernie Williams and the guitar. Ooh, tough call. Tough call there. Uh, I've heard them both. I think, I think Mike Reed's a little more polished. I'd go with uh, I'd go with Reed. You know, you're talking about a professional. Bernie's just kind of a plucker, but a pretty good plucker. But then again, he's a Yankee, so I can't I can't go that way, even if he was Segovia. Well, thanks, Ronnie. Uh, also, one other question. Best star from Cincinnati, Pete Rose, Big O, Mike Reed, or Lonnie Anderson and WKRP? <laughs> yeah, I think we know where we're going. <laughs> yes, Up next, we it's a deeper dive into the NFL draft. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. <laughs> this is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin. And Ron Borges. Before we get into this week's draft, a quick mention of former running back Reggie Cobb and 49ers scout Reggie Cobb, who passed away last weekend at the age of 50. Goose, I know you remember him. Uh, in fact, you probably remember him as a player and as a draft pick. So what do you remember? Yeah, I remember he was a first-round talent, slid into the second round in 1990, but all the backs were sliding that year. You know, Emmett Smith went at 17. He was a terrific college back at Tennessee, yep. and he also had a thousand-yard season in the NFL. But he was probably a better scout than a player. You know, in in 2011, he won the Fritz Pollard Alliance Award as the NFL's top scout. 
Yeah, what a shocker. I mean, 50, holy smokes. I, you know, I, I didn't know him, but I'll tell you what, I, I still have uh, people I talk to out in the Bay Area, and I heard nothing, nothing but good or great things about him. And I'll admit, uh, Ron, it was, it was refreshing to have John Lynch, who's the 49ers GM, uh, open his news conference on the draft this week. Not talking about the draft, but talking about Reggie Cobb and how much he meant to those who knew him. Yeah, well, you know, he, he's interesting in a lot of ways because, you know, he made a tremendous personal comeback. He had a lot of drug problems when he was in, in college. He was uh, uh, suspended several times. He failed at least three of drug tests. I think it was actually more than that. He finally was thrown off the team uh, uh, prior to their game against Alabama in 1989 because for failing another uh, drug test. Um, you know, he, he uh, that year I think he was averaging almost seven yards a carry when he got the boot. Uh, and, and that's uh, the reason he ended up being drafted in the second round was that uh, he went to John Lucas's uh, uh, drug rehab Mm-hmm, in Tampa, right. and Ray Perkins was the coach in Tampa at the time, and visited with him a number of times while he was there, and took a liking to him, and decided he would take a chance on him. and And it turns out he came out as Goose said he had a rush over eleven hundred yards in nineteen ninety two, and had a solid uh, career as a player, and then a, a, a superior career as a scout uh, in Washington and Tampa, and then finally with the Niners. So, quite a nice comeback story, and uh, sad that uh, that his life ended so at, at such a young age. Yeah, it is sad. I mean, as I said, 50. Wow. Man, I can almost remember when I was 50. How about you, Ron? <laughs> I can't remember what I had for breakfast. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to the draft. Uh, most everywhere this week, there were GMs like John Lynch who were talking about the draft. And no surprise, um, they were telling their listeners nothing, <laughs> which is why I'd like to mention Chargers general manager Tom Telesco, um, because he not only said nothing at his draft seminar, he told reporters before he even started, he said, I'm not going to say anything of any substance. You can ask me whatever you want. I'm not going to answer. We'll talk. We'll have fun. He basically told him, look, I know I have to do this, but it's a waste of time for me and for you. Uh, which is what others don't say in as many words, but Ron, it's what they end up doing anyway, right? Well, yeah, no, I mean, look, this is the universal time of uh, uh, of not disinformation, but no information. You know, lies are told, but mostly nothing is told. Uh, teams don't know what's going to happen any more than we do, to tell you the truth. Um, the, the perfect guy to conduct these pre-draft uh, uh, press conferences, though, I've given a lot of thought to this. Each team should bring him in. Professor Irwin Corey. He's- <laughs> Just put them up there. No one understand. Everyone get a laugh, and then they leave and move on to the next. And they leave. Right. Hey, Goose, of all the drafts you covered, no, you covered a lot of them, uh, who is the worst liar? And then who is the guy who couldn't help himself? The guy you went to, and you, you go, I know I'm going to get it from him. Well, Jimmy Johnson was a master at the smoke. He, he never lied to me, but he pumped out so much misinformation that even folks in the building didn't know what was real and what was not. Yeah, there was just so much smoke around the cowboys that nobody was ever sure what they were doing. And Jimmy usually had a million graphics to just further muddy the waters. And he also might have been the most honest guy to me. So, Oh, wow. Double-edged okay. sword. Well, you had a knack for putting the right player with the right team. I think everyone knows that. So two-part question here. Uh, a, what was your secret? And B, how much stock do you put in the information, and frankly, as Ron mentioned, disinformation that you got in the week immediately leaving up to the draft? Well, in my prep work, I didn't focus on the first round. I focused on the entire draft of a board of about 300 players and tried to see where they're all fit. I knew the teams, that the needs, and I trusted the work in building my top 100 that when I put together my mock, I could just match draft value and team need. It worked out more often than it didn't. You know, I never specifically asked any team, who are you going to draft? Mm-hmm. But I always had a pretty good feel based on need and value. Right, right. Well, Ron, you covered a team that's historically known as being, I don't know, well, probably 
say is cooperative with the media and probably free with this information as a Kremlin. So how difficult was it for you to find out what the New England Patriots were doing and whom they were interested in? That is when you weren't hooked up by a phone to their draft room. <laughs> I was going to say, one year was exceedingly easy, actually, as it, as it turned out. Uh, but uh, generally, you had to get your information from other teams who had spoken with uh, with Belichick. Uh, uh, Fortunately, it turned out uh, that he spoke to a lot of teams, and a lot of those teams had guys who liked me more than they liked him. Uh, so, so part of the time Imagine I could find... Imagine that. Yeah, so I could find out quite a, quite a bit, actually. Uh, he never quite understood... Uh, how that could could be, but he was the uh, leaker in chief, even though he didn't understand. <laughs> he didn't understand that he was. And so, Gooseman, um, if you were calling around to different teams and that sort of thing, or maybe uh, relying on people that you've known for years, can you give us? Oh, I don't know, a list of five do's and don'ts for reporters today who are trying to be like you and trying to solve this draft puzzle. First and foremost, you need to get the first pick right. If you miss the first pick, you're going to have a long day. <laughs> Secondly, if you already have any credibility, you need to get the player your local team is drafting, regardless right. if that team is right. picking 5th, 15th, or 25th. That's how you build credibility in the market. Right. Third, don't listen to any NFL chatter you hear draft week. It's all smoke. Trust your gut. Trust the work you put in over the previous weeks and months. Don't scrap all the quality research based on what you may have heard a day or two before the draft. Fourth, understand the value positions. Quarterbacks, pass rushers, left tackles, cornerbacks, those are the players who force their way up the draft board into the top 10, 12, and 15. And lastly, don't take yourself too seriously. That's why they call them mock drafts. <laughs> good, good information, but you know, Ron talks about trusting my gut. I'm trusting my gut. I'm making hungry. I am hungry right now. Oh my God, I'm trusting my gut. So, Ron, can you give us a list of five do's and don'ts for reporters covering the New England Patriots? Sure, five, uh, five do's and don'ts. Don't believe anything they tell you. <laughs> Including what... <laughs> do expect that anything you are told is utterly and totally untrue. Don't expect them to follow conventional wisdom, whatever that is. Do expect them to make a trade because they've done it 18 of the past 19 drafts. Don't think any wide receiver they draft will be any good at all because of the 16 receivers Bill Belichick has drafted. Only two. Deion Branch wow. and Julian Edelman had productive long-term careers. David Gibbons was good for a little bit and made a ton of money in Tennessee. I think he caught about two balls there. And then there's the greatest wide receiver pick uh, that he ever made, Matthew Slater, who's a seven-time Pro Bowl player and has caught one pass in 11 seasons. And he is <laughs> what we like to call a special teams maven, the king of coverage. How did they find Julian Edelman? <laughs> he oh, was a quarterback. Yeah, there was a guy named Gooseman who there you go. off to a quarterback. He will return your phone calls. <laughs> well, Belichick will return his phone calls. Mine yeah, he so will. Much. That's right. <laughs> good for uh, the Patriots and good for Bill Belichick that he did, too. Okay, since we deal with history on the show, Gooseman, what modern-era draft do you consider the best ever and why? Well, that would be my mock draft in 1998. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mocked the first 12 picks correctly and had 18 direct hits in the 31 first-round selections. Wow. Easily a great mock. So I'm always, I'm always partial to that draft. Peyton Manning, Randy Moss, Charles Woodson, Alan Fanica, Heinz Ward, just a lots of Hall of Fame caliber players. I like that draft. I like that uh, draft Ron, a lot. Ron, you ate the first 15 picks, didn't you, in that draft? <laughs> yeah, 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 I did. Gooseman lied to me about one of them. Otherwise, I had a point. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's right. Um, Bruce, one other question for you. How do you, or, or how did you, grade draft classes afterwards? I mean, I, I know it was on an A, B, and C basis, but um, what would it take to get an A or a B? Because it seems like today, it just seems like those grades... A's and B's are handed out every year. Everyone's got a great draft. Everyone's a first round, first ballot draft uh, Hall of Famer. Um, everyone's doing well. How do you? How did you do it? I had I had as many as six hundred players on my board. I assigned all of them a point value. At the end of the draft, you add up the points of the picks by that team, divide by the number of picks, and you got a number. And then I graded on the bell curve. I always gave a one A plus, couple A's, couple B's, a million C's because by and large, most NFL drafts are average. Couple D's right. and enough. Well, I've always thought you really can't grade those things until, I don't know, right. three, maybe four years. Um, but, Ron, I mean, your team, I'll give you, is a good example. I mean, I, I think they're the Patriots are a team that you, you can't evaluate immediately. And um, the reason is <laughs> that six-round pick in 2000, 199 player, Tom Brady. I mean, I can only imagine what they were saying about him then. And, and maybe you can tell us, and maybe you can tell us what you said about him. The day after he was chosen. Yeah, I can remember exactly what I said. That's the worst-looking 40-yard dash I've ever seen <laughs> in combine history. You know, the guy, he's a guy who ran loud, you know, those feet, bap, 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 you know, 5-2. Uh, look, nothing was said about the guy. And actually, I wish on this show there'd be nothing said about the guy once in a while. But he is a great quarterback. <laughs> Excuse me? Uh, Pardon me. Yeah, you are. Uh, uh, and look, anyone who claimed that, it, that when they took him with 199th pick in that draft, anybody was talking about him, including Bill Belichick, they would be lying. And uh, Belichick, I always give him credit for that. He, he's always made very clear that, hey, look, uh, you know, A, he had nothing to do with the pick. He gave it to Dick Rabine, who was the quarterback coach at the time, and said, you take a guy. And B, had no idea, not even an inkling of what they had. And uh, look what look how it turned out. Okay, we're short on time here, so Goose, I'm going to run to you quickly. Which teams draft the modern era of the NFL do you consider the best ever, and why? Over quality, the 74 Steelers took four Hall of Famers in the first five rounds. Swan, Lambert, Stallworth, Webster. For quantity, 86 Niners. Traded out of the first, wound up with seven guys who started a Super Bowl three years later, including Charles Haley. Okay, and Ron, uh, other than the phone call with the war room, any memorable <laughs> draft day story you can share in 15 seconds? Yeah, well, I got a really good one for you. In 1954, uh, Paul Brown was looking to, for someone to uh, uh, replace aging Otto Graham, so he took an All-American quarterback from Stanford named Bobby Garrett with a number one pick in the draft. Garrett had been the MVP of the Hula Bowl and highly respected. Only one problem. He stuttered and couldn't call plays that began oh. with the letter S, like split <laughs> left. Cleveland traded him immediately that summer to the Packers, who were searching for a backup for Tobin Rote. They didn't know he stuttered either. Poor Bobby Garrett only played nine games in the, in the, uh, in the NFL. True story. Ouch. Thanks, guys. We're going to take a break here and let Ron complete his latest mock draft. When we return, the draft begins. Our draft, that is. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, before we get started with our NFL draft, we wanted to plug what the Pro Football Hall of Fame is doing on this Saturday, which is day three of the NFL draft, and that's offering 50% off admission, free parking, and 20% off everything in the hall store for persons, oh yeah, living in the 446 and 447 zip codes, which just happens to 
to be. Oh, by the way, Ken, sounds like we're on another victory for the home team. Yeah, sounds like uh, Big Country did a survey. He realized only 71,000 people live in Canton. Most of them already <laughs> been to the Hall of Fame, so he's not going to have to deliver too many, too many discounts. But, you know, we get a few extra people dropping by, you know, that'd be good. Yeah, it's still a good deal. Anyway, speaking of business, we're going to get to the business at hand here. Uh, a week ago, as I mentioned, I was with my family in Tampa. We had the privilege, just privilege, of spending time with Buck's PR director, Nelson uh, Luis, and Hall of Fame voter and longtime friend, Ira Kaufman, who's with us now on the phone. And Ira told me something then that, Goose, I didn't know, um, that he's joining the senior committee this year, which means, Ira, that you're joining Rick and Ron, who are also on the senior committee. So, first of all, congratulations. And second... Good luck trying to keep up with these guys. Thank you, my friend. If you boys keep up your mischief, John Lynch will be up for induction on the seniors in a few years. <laughs> That's what we're hoping for. <laughs> well, Ira, I know you haven't been in a room with them as a part of that senior committee, not yet anyway, but you're on with us now. And so we've decided to take advantage of that vast knowledge of history and, frankly, pro football knowledge that you have. And invite you to join our first ever Talk of Fame draft. And, and here's how it goes. We're going to draft 12 players, any players from any era, but they must be retired. And, and we're drafting them for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. In other words, they can't be in, so you draft them for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Obviously, they're not in now, which is why we're here. But each one of us will draft three players for Ken, with each of us making a pick. And then we're going to wait for the three others to make their picks. Anyway, you got that? Anyone have any questions? Anyone? Ira? Goose? Rick? Nope. Good Any questions, but you have no answers, so let's do it. <laughs> okay, you're right about that. Never do. Um, oh, and one more thing. Uh, no time limit. Uh, take as much or as little time as you need to make a choice. Don't and remember, remember, it can be a retired player from any era. And Ira, because you're our guest, and because you and Nelson were such gracious hosts last week in Tampa, you have the first choice. So, Ira Kaufman, you're on the clock. Thank you, Clark, and I, I want you to, you know, make sure you tell those boys that I was ready to pick up that breakfast check until Nelson put his card down, and then I bowed out, as I should. I bowed <laughs> as you out. should. <laughs> he just, but he I, just I, couldn't I, find his wallet. He goes, I know it's here somewhere. I can't <laughs> find my wallet. Uh, now, being uh, a new member of the senior committee, um, I'm going to go with uh, uh, some seniors. Uh, my number one pick is a guy that you guys have talked up, and I'm going with Tommy Nobis. Middle linebacker, Atlanta Falcons, first pick, 66 draft, immediately becomes rookie of the year, five-time pro bowler, credited with 296 tackles in his rookie season. 296. Try that one for Trey Flowers over there, Borges. 296. (laughs) Okay, good. Tommy Novus is off the board. And, and hold on, one more thing, one more thing. I think Tommy Nobis, perhaps more than any other player, epitomizes a great player who gets pinged for playing for a terrible franchise. The Falcons were 50 and 100 during his 11 year career. Wow. Okay, Gooseman, you're up. Gentlemen, there have been 16 first-team all-decade wide receivers over the last eight decades. All have been enshrined in Canton except one, and Drew Pearson has never even been discussed as a finalist. NFL Films commissioned the documentary on the 75 greatest catches in NFL history in 1994 on the 75th anniversary league. 
and Pearson had three of those catches. So what's the problem? Okay, Ron, I put that one down as a homer pick. Um, Should I have Robert Q up the autumn wind for you here? Well, eventually you will have to, but not at the moment. My first pick, uh, and you guys have heard me talk about him before, is long forgotten, and it's absurd that he is Duke Slater. Duke played in the 20s and the early 30s when he was uh, twice the only black player in the league uh, due to segregation. He played every minute of every game for three straight seasons uh, for the Rock Island between 1922 and 26. He's the first African-American lineman in NFL history. He was named All-Pro six times in 10, in 10 years. And uh, to me, the greatest thing about him is that when they banned black players... So there were no black players uh, in the league in 1927. They declared him an Indian so he could keep playing. Oh, and that's as good as it gets. That's as good as it gets. That's a tough one to follow, Ron. But you know what says I've got to follow you. I'm going with former Philadelphia lineman Al Wistert. He was an All-Pro in eight of his nine NFL seasons and the captain of the Eagles NFL championship teams of 1948 and 49. Now, he played both ways, tackle and offense, was alignment on defense, and he was so good that George Allen once said he was one of the top ten tackles ever. I know what you're saying. So what, huh? So what? Well, so the other nine are in Canton. I have no idea how Al Wister slipped through the cracks, but you know what, guys? His fall just ended. Ira, you're back up. Uh, Goose, didn't you put a scouting grade out on uh, on Duke Slater when he came out that season? I, I can't remember. <laughs> had, to, had to play guard. Couldn't play outside. <laughs> All right. My second pick, gentlemen, is Winston Hill. Joe Namitz, blindside protector, New York Jets. First 14 NFL seasons. The man missed one game. Left tackle extraordinaire. Eight-time all-league player. Eight. Second team, all AFL team of the 60s. And finally, in the biggest game perhaps in NFL history, he dominated the line of scrimmage against the vaunted Colts as Matt Snell rambled for 121 yards, mostly off left tackle. Uh, Thanks for ruining my day. Goose, you're next. First off, how can the greatest game in NFL history not fall for Cowboys? <laughs> okay. 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 Uh, now, here's another, in my mind, obvious choice who's been forgotten. Uh, the great Buffalo Bills linebacker Cornelius Bennett. He was a star on those four Buffalo Bills teams that lost four straight Super Bowls. Had they won one, he would have been in years ago. Had they won two, he would be first ballot Hall of Famer. Although not with my vote. I hate her first battle. Anyway, uh, he's on the outside looking in, and I remain incredulous that, uh, that he was a three-time All-Pro, a five-time Pro Bowl player, a member of the 1990s All-Decade team. But the most remarkable thing is he was twice, not once, Ira, twice named Defensive Player of the Year. There was no other player, to the best of my knowledge, who was ever a two-time Defensive Player of the Year not in the Hall of Fame. If there is, put him in, too. Cornelius Bennett. Okay, give me former Cleveland Browns wide receiver, Mac Speedy. In the seven years of the Browns, he went to the NFL championship game, oh yeah, seven times. Won five of them. So it's a team game, right? Yeah, he's right. Except Cleveland couldn't have gone without Mac Speedy, who was a six-time first-team 
all pro six times seven years four times led the league in catches who averaged 800 yards receiving a year which was a record that wasn't broken until two decades after he retired and who scored 83 touchdowns in 86 games oh yeah for what's worth guys he was the mvp of the 1952 browns yeah another guy who was long overdue okay ira your last pick Okay, um, if I had four picks, I was thinking about George Webster, linebacker. You don't have four. You don't have four. Our account, it's three. (laughs) I don't have four, so here's my toss out to Goose. Cliff Harris, safety, Dallas Cowboys, five Super Bowls, six straight Pro Bowls, Dallas top ten defense every one of Harris's seasons, and a guy who never talks, Larry Wilson, who knew how to play the position, said Cliff Harris was the best free safety in the National Football League. I go with Cliff Harris. Oh, Goose has got to love that pick. Yeah. Goose man. It's not a second I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, uh, let, me, let me go with another defensive back. Ken Riley ranks yeah. second among pure quarterbacks. The interception was 65, but has never been a Hall of Fame finalist. The NFL's second all-time leading passer rusher receiver and sacker all have busts now in canton so what's the hold up with the candidacy of the nfl's second all-time leading interceptor he's fifth overall interceptions tied with charles woodson and you can bet woodson's going to be a first ballot guy ken rarely deserves better and we're going to give it to him right now he's my guy right i can't believe he took him I can't believe it. You must be looking over my shoulder, my sheet. We had him as the next guy. Okay, got to scratch him. Ron, you're next. All right. The moment has come. Cue up the autumn winds, please. Oh, <laughs> what took you so long? Lester Hayes recalls the autumn winds because there was no more of a pirate than Lester. He was a two-time Super Bowl champion, a six-time first or second team All-Pro, a five-time Pro Bowl selection, and the 1980 Defensive Player of the Year. He had so much sticking on, they had to outlaw stick him. Tremendous player, a converted linebacker. Uh, and he had, in 1980, one of the single greatest seasons ever uh, by a defensive back. When he had 13 interceptions in the regular season, I know Goose is going to say, well, Nitrate Lane, he had 14 in Detroit uh, in 1953. Well, he did. Except Lester the Molesta had five more in the playoffs. Give him 18 picks that season. Eight. 18 picks. There are guys in the Hall of Fame with careers that have 18 picks. That's almost as many as uh, Jameis Winston threw last year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go. There you go. And and, and he's also, uh, along with Hall of Famer Mike Haynes, considered uh, a duo of perhaps the greatest set of cornerbacks ever to play. And if they're not the greatest to ever play, whatever Lister is, you don't take very long to get to their name. Lester Hayes belongs in the Hall of Fame. Clark, yeah. this is a bigger upset than Jerry Kramer waiting 50 years. Ron didn't mention Cliff Branch. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But he did get the autumn wind queued up. And you know what? I want bang on the drum queued up because I'm going to Green Bay where Todd Rundgren's played every weekend there, and he should be for being the greatest rock and roller of all time. I'm going to wrap this up with Green Bay fans. They think this guy's uh, well, maybe the greatest Packer not in the hall. And that's 
Vern Llewellyn. Yeah, Vern Llewellyn. During his nine seasons with the Green Bay, that'd be 1924 to 32. And I think Goose also had this guy on his board. Um, Vern played offense, defense, and he punted and was among the league leaders in rushing, receiving, yeah, and passing. And you know what, guys? He didn't even let the league in interceptions. Packers had a run of three straight NFL titles from 29 to 31. And the team MVP? Ah, Vern Llewellyn. He was so good that when Johnny Blood was inducted into the hall, he said he shouldn't have gone in before Vern Llewellyn. And you know what? He was right. Vern Llewellyn's in the Wisconsin Hall of Fame. He's in the Packers Hall of Fame. And today, he joins the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Okay, all three of you guys are on the senior committee. Goose, you've been doing this for over 20 years. So I'm going to start with you. There's a very good chance that there's going to be an amnesty class in 2020. How many of these guys do you think make that list? Well, I still have to see an MC class to believe there's going to be an MC class. With that said, I'm guessing just a small handful of this group, maybe maybe four or five. Ronnie? Yeah, that's probably true. You know, uh, uh, I'm hoping to see some guys from the, from the early years, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago that, that uh, disappeared. Uh, the, but the one hope I have is whoever gets in in this AMC class gets the full recognition and appreciation for their achievements and then not looked upon as guys who came into Canton, you know, uh, through the side door like those kids who went to USC. These guys did not get in through the side door. They were denied the front door by the stupidity of voters many years ago. And we're going to get that straight. Right, right. Ira? Yeah. Hey, Ira, by the way, Ira, we're out of time. Sorry. You've got to wait for the next show to answer that. We're out of time. Thanks for joining us. And I can't believe you didn't mention John Lynch. That's the upset today. Congratulations, guys. Thanks for doing this. And, Ira, congratulations on getting named to the Hall's Senior Committee. And you know what? Thanks for uh, hosting us last week. Really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. My pleasure. You got Thanks, it. Sir. That was Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman of Tampa and JoeBucksFan.com. And this, yeah, this is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're just about out of time, so Robert, let's hear it one more time. That's the two-minute warning. That's right, one of the two-minute drill again. Take it away, Ronnie. A little count more with NFL drafts when it comes to the aptly named Mississippi State edge rusher Monte Sweat. His heart condition or his 4-4-1-40 time at the combine? 40 time. Heart matters only if you're looking at Ann and Nancy Wilson. Neither. His position, edge rusher. Eight running backs have been taken on the first round over the last four drafts. Does that streak end in 2019? Yeah, what does, but there will be a run on defensive players. Does that count? <laughs> Alabama's Josh Jacobs hopes not. He's a top back in this draft. Are runners on the rise, or was that a four-year aberration? No, on the rise. Look how many runners competed in last week's Boston Marathon, Ron. <laughs> runners are definitely on the rise. They're easier to find than quarterbacks. The most defensive players ever drafted in the first round was 19. Will that be broken this year, this week? I have no idea. Check with me a week from now, or maybe I can look at Goose's sheet over here. No, there are too many blockers and receivers with first-round grades, plus too many teams that need quarterback. Arizona quarterback, speaking of quarterbacks, Josh Rosen is owed only $6 million the next three years and just $1.8 million in 2019. Should the Cardinals consider him a bargain and keep him, even if they take a quarterback first? Absolutely not. If, he bench, if he's benched, he becomes a distraction. The value isn't trading Rosen. The value is trading the first overall pick. Bears have seven national games. Town of seven national TV games is seven. five in prime time, one in London, and one on Thanksgiving. What what makes them a hot commodity? Check the Dow, Ron. It's a bear market. <laughs> the nation's third largest TV market. Ooh, very good. Browns themselves have four primetime games this year, which is three more than they had the previous three years combined. 
Will TV be proven right or no judge of talent? Well, America loves dog pound, so yep, TV's playing a winning hand. With Baker Mayfield, the Browns now belong in prime time. The NFL helped finance the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium in London, so why didn't they help out San Diego or Oakland? Because they care more about the Benjamins than the Jimmys and Joes. Agreed, they care more about international branding than California football. <laughs> why can't Bill Belichick draft a decent wide receiver? Because there's always a catch. Because he doesn't need one. That's the greatness of Tom Brady. <laughs> That's the end of the game. any podcast, just go to our website, that'd be talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. Thanks for listening.